as I get started this morning, I do want to take a little straw poll. Um, how many of you have ever seen the movie Titanic? Just put your hand up. Just get it. Wow. The Titanic. Now, my wife tells me that it's a, a romance story in which 1,600 people die. Not sure I'm interested in that kind of romance. But, you know, the, the thing about this, um, the Titanic, was there were some things that went tragically wrong in that whole process that could have been avoided. The first, the first issue that the Titanic faced was she was the greatest naval feat ever brought to the history of man. She was unsinkable. Nothing could take her down. And so the engineers and the builders, they all believed that. Then they passed that, on to that information on to the owners and uh, ultimately to the captain of the ship. And so they leave with this naive notion that all is going to be safe no matter what happens. It doesn't matter how rough the seas get. It doesn't matter what's in the ocean. We are going to be safe because we have this, the greatest marvel of, of uh, Navy history. That was kind of futile and foolish thinking. The second thing that w- went wrong when the ship went down is they had 18 life, uh, life rafts, li- lifeboats. And those 18 lifeboats could hold 100 people per boat. The problem is, is that when those boats hit the water, they were either a little more than half full or just half full. And there are thousands of people in the water crying out to be rescued. And what happened was that many of the passengers in the water were crying for help, but their cries went unheard. Many of those little raft or those lifeboats were manned by crew members. They were the ones at the oars directing the boat, where it would go and what it would do. But a lot of the crew members were unsure about what they should do. And so they would ask if we should go and help the people who were in the water. And just about every boat said no. In, in boat number uh, two, the fourth officer, Boxhall, asked the ladies, shall we go back? They said no. So boat two drifted less than 300 yards away while the anguished cries from the people in the water drifted across the icy waters with no response. On boat number six, the situation was reversed. The women begged quartermaster Hitchinson to return, but he refused, painting a vivid picture of drowning, overturning, of the drowning overturning the boat. The women pleaded as the cries grew fewer and fewer. Of the 18 boats, only one boat, boat number 14, returned to help. But this was an hour after the Titanic sinking when the thrashing crowd had thinned out. The personal drama of the sinking of the Titanic is a parable of a world gone wrong. Fallen humanity is adrift on an unfriendly sea, alienated, unable to help one another, despite some kind of covert individual attempts. The wrongness of everything points to the fundamental of problems of, of the people of the problem of people's estranged from each other and from creation by sin. It's a picture of a world desperately in need of reconciliation, the harmony and the righteousness it brings. Even apart from the terrible story of the Titanic, there is no doubt that the world is in need of reconciliation. Man is profoundly alienated from God now as he has ever been. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, we are as much alienated today as we have ever been. At this time of the year, we're going to celebrate Advent, which is the first coming of Christ. There's a second Advent that's going to happen, and that is really good news for all of us to know that Christ is coming back. But Jesus, in his coming, he, he provided the first step of being reconciled to God so that, that there was hope, so that, so that we aren't just 
drifting out in the open sea with no one to help us, with no one to look out for us, with, with no hope. Jesus is the one who brings reconciliation, and reconciliation is the lifeboat that he puts out into the water to catch those who are adrift with no hope. As we have been going through Paul's letter to the Colossians church, he deals with this issue in a very direct way. He doesn't beat around the bush. That's what I love about Paul. He comes straight at it. And he deals with our alienation from God. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. Turn to Colossians 1, 19 through 20. Um, we're going to look at a few verses after that too, but Colossians 1, 19 is where we're starting. And, and here's what it says. For in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Paul's making the case here against those who say that, yeah, Jesus is a good guy and he's a good starting place, but you need to have more. He, he's addressing this thing straight on because they're saying that, that Jesus is, is a, a, a good teacher, but he's not everything and you need to come to us so you get to know more of what you really need in order to be a really spiritual person. And what we're looking at this morning is how Paul directly attacks that notion because he says the, the phrase there, all the fullness of God, is where the identity of Jesus comes to us as being God himself. It, 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 he, is, he is the most prominent person phrase in scripture to identify Christ here when it says fullness it means the totality of divine power and attributes is in Christ it is like more like whole fullness or the full fullness or in other terms for us to really get a good grasp on it Jesus is the exhaustion of God himself there's no more to get out of it it's completely filled into Christ. And this fullness wasn't something that Jesus received at his baptism. You remember the story when Jesus went down to the water and had his um, cousin John the Baptist baptize him and the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove and a voice from heaven, his father said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. We might think that that's when the fullness of God came in on Jesus, but that's not when it happened. Jesus, as that little baby in the manger, had all the fullness of God as a little baby. Before Jesus was born, he had all the fullness of God dwelling in him. So Jesus is eternal because God gave that, or, or didn't give it to him, but Jesus always possessed the fullness of God. There was nothing lacking in Jesus to make him less than divine. And, and so this morning as we take a look at what we're um, talking about, we need to understand that we don't need to look to anyone else except Jesus for the full revelation of God's character. You want to know what God the Father is like? You, you spend time with Jesus because all of God's attributes, all of, all of God's um, action is revealed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's His Spirit, His Word, His wisdom and glory. They are all disclosed in Jesus, and we specially see God's redemptive plan taking place in Christ. Later on in this letter, Paul makes this same uh, a statement that's very similar to what he says here in verse 19 and 20. And he says, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, here's the, here's the, the thing that we really need to get our, our heads around, is that Jesus isn't some kind of sub-God, lesser God, than God the Father. He is 100% fully God like the Father. There is nothing lacking in Him in, in ability, in might, in power, in majesty, in glory. Nothing lacks in Jesus that, that, that the Father has. Everything that the Father has, Jesus has. By the way, whatever Jesus and the Father have, so does the Spirit have. And the Spirit is the one who God has given to us so that we can live this life out 
to, to the full extent that God's called us to live it out. I want you to take a look at the word. It says um, to dwell. The fullness of God to dwell in Christ. That dwell word is, is uh, very important, is as important as fullness. It means much more than merely to reside somewhere. I dwell in my house. You dwell in your homes. We reside there, but we don't spend all of our time there. Uh, oh, and by the way, sometime you might sell your house. Who knows? It's not the permanent. It, uh, I mean, we call it our permanent residency. But it's not that permanent. One day, you will leave that home. You're either going to walk out the door or they're going to carry you out in a stretcher. But you will leave that home. And so the word to dwell that, that it, Paul uses here, it means to be at home permanently. This fullness was not something added to his being that was not natural to him. But it was part of his essential being as part of his very constitution. That is that it is permanent. It, it, it won't disappear. It's, it's not going to go away. It's always there. It has always been there. It always is there. And it always will be there. That's why Jesus is eternal. The fullness of God was not just to show us who Jesus was, or to give us proof who Jesus is. The fullness of, of God in Jesus is functional. You know, there are a lot of things that we do that don't particularly work out to be functional in our lives. I mean, you just ask a math teacher how many of their students in high school are saying, why do we have to learn this junk What's it ever going to help me in high school? I was one of those cats. I said that to my uh, algebra teacher. And then when I started working in construction, I thought to myself, huh, I should have paid closer attention to this because this is exactly what we learned in math class. And, but there are things that we, we learn that's just information. It's not necessarily functional. But what we're talking about here with Jesus is that the fullness, fullness of God was was more than just show or proof. There was a functionality to it, and it was to reconcile all things to himself. So let's just take a little closer look at Colossians 1 through 19. I've just put up a little, a little section of that phrase, of that verse, those verses up there for you, and it says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Paul uses the word reconcile to describe what Jesus would do for us, and we need to have a clear understanding of what reconcile or reconciliation means. Because, uh, you know, we, I, I can use this word, and you might have conjured up in your own mind what that means to you, and, and somebody else might have a different meaning to it, but what we have to understand is how does Paul use this word, and what does he want us to glean from it from, for the meaning? And so the meaning of reconcile, the root idea is change of attitude or relationship. Jesus is going to reconcile us to God so that we have a change in our attitude and our relationship towards God. There is a natural estrangement or alienation between God and man, which was the byproduct of original sin. You see, understand, we... Uh, I want to just go back. I'm going to go back to the beginning. That's what Genesis means. And Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Disobedience is sin. And when they disobeyed God, that disobedience alienated them from the relationship that they had previously had with God. It was gone. It was wiped out. It was never to be the same again. God made a promise to them. He said, if you break this one law, don't eat from this tree. If you, if you disobey me in this, it's going to be the death of our relationship, which is what happened. We were alienated then from God because of Adam and Eve. And that, that alienation is in every single person who has ever walked the, the planet. Every sin that we commit is against God first and foremost. And by our nature, we are enemies of God. You may not think of yourself of an, as 
being an enemy of God. You may have never thought of yourself as I'm an enemy against God, but the Word of God tells us that if we're not with God, for God, then we are against Him. There is no middle ground on this. There is no place in the Bible that it tells us that you can be neutral about your decision on Jesus and God. He says, the Bible tells and makes it very clear that you either step into relationship with God and you are adopted into his family or you are outside of the family and you are doing everything you can against God. Even though it may not be intentional, it, it is in our hearts and our heart's nature to do the very thing that God calls us to do, but not to do it, to do our own thing. We want to fulfill our own will against what God has for us. What God has for us is best. What we want to do is self-destructive. It's self-destructive to our bodies, to our minds, to our relationships. We are always in the, in the throes of, of just hurting ourselves. It says, you know, in Romans, Paul says that before we were created, we were, before we were reconciled, we are enemies of God. In Ephesians, Paul calls us sons and daughters of disobedience. Paul also said, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. We can't. We, our natural mind cannot submit to the things of God. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. God has, has made a call to every person on this planet. Come and be my daughter. Come and be my son. I've got something for you that you have never experienced. I've got something that is going to bring vitality and life to your soul. I've got something that is going to enhance the way that you live life. See, we are not operating as the original design. When God created Adam and Eve originally before they sinned, it was perfect. Everything about them was perfect. The way they thought, the way they talked, the way they acted, they didn't sin. They didn't say mean things to each other as husbands and wives. They didn't treat animals with cruelty. They didn't do anything out of the order of which God made them, but God did give them a will. And in that will, he said, because if you have this free will, you will be tempted to take this fruit and eat of it. And I'm telling you, don't do it because that is going to be bad. It's going to be bad, not just for you, but it'll be bad for every generation that comes after you. Because what will happen is, is that in that, that process, I don't know how it happened, I don't know how it came about, but in that process, as Adam and Eve disobeyed God, there was something that went horribly wrong in our DNA. Every single person's DNA has been screwed up since then. And we have this propensity to disobey God at every turn. But not only that, we can't please God either. Not just we disobey Him. Sometimes we think I'm going to do this to make God like me. But we can't do anything that's going to make God happy with this. Now, I want you to understand, often we see in Scripture that our relationship with God is likened to that of the husband and wife. When a relationship between a husband and wife is strained, there's, there's something that has happened in that relationship. First thing that happens is communication breaks down. They're not talking to each other. They, they, they might sit at the table and have a meal together. They may bump into each other as they're working through the home. They may drive somewhere together in total silence, but there is no communication going on because that communication, because of the strain in the relationship, has dissolved down just to the, the basic animalistic grunts. Would you like some peanut butter with your bread? Uh. You want coffee? Yeah. You want me to get the groceries in for you? Whatever. We just we boil it down. I mean, we have no more communication going on because we're just kind of being, you know, nasty to each other. Instead of saying, no, that would be great if you got the groceries in for me. It's like, yeah, do whatever. I can get them. And that's what happens when a marriage relationship is really strained. Communication breaks off. The, the next thing that happens in that relationship, when communication ceases to flow, 
intimacy is terminated. When you are at odds with your spouse and you go, you know, probably I should give her a hug today. You go to give her a hug, it's like hugging a porcupine. It hurts. It's not fun. And, and the intimacy in the relationship absolutely is terminated. There's no touching. There's no hugging. There's no kissing. There's no holding hands. None of it. It's just gone. And what you become is dysfunctional roommates. And, and, and after that happens, after the intimacy is dissolved, then resentment starts to build. All of us have one of five major love languages in our life. I try to remember these all the time, but um, my memory's not that good. But one of those major love languages is meaningful touch. And the person who has meaningful touch in their life as their love language isn't getting meaningful touch from their spouse. What the spouse is saying to him is, not only do I, am I mad at you and I'm not going to talk to you and I'm, and I'm not going to be you know, cozy with you, but I don't even love you. Because if you're not touching, the other person is saying, this person doesn't love me because they're not touching me. When all that stuff happens in the, in the relationship, the home itself is a shambles. Everything may be in place inside the home but it is no longer a home. It is no longer a place of love. It is not a house where, where peace and harmony and love dwell. It becomes just a dumping station. We dump our clothes there. We dump our groceries there. We spend a lot more time outside or with our girlfriends or with our guy friends, and, and we're just doing all this stuff. That's what we know for, for those of us who have been married. I don't know anybody who has not been down that path, maybe not to the full extent, but the, the bottom line is, is that if that goes on long enough, the marriage dissolves. But let's just back it up. Instead of marriage dissolving, someone takes the first step and confesses sin and, and makes things right, and the couple is reconciled. That's the word that is used, Paul uses, for husbands and wives to be reconciled they come together but as they come together there's more because when we think about being reconciled to God we think we're at peace with God but there's far more to it than that because as as a husband and wife are reconciled there is peace in the home again but then there's also meaningful communication that's going on on all levels intimacy is restored within the relationship and and, and they love just to be in each other's arms and spend time with each other. Um, communication is, is reestablished. Intimacy is restored. And there is a, there's a joyful understanding that's built into the relationship where we start to work in harmony with one another. It goes far beyond just making peace and being at peace with each other and being okay being in the home. It creates this uniqueness called marriage. That's the picture God wants us to have of his relationship with him. Oftentimes the Bible refers to us as the body of, of Christ, as the bride of Christ. He is our husband, we are the bride. He wants to have this intimate relationship with us where there's great communication between us and him, where there's intimacy on a level like we've never known before, where we find peace in our hearts and in our lives. We've got all this stuff going on. And, and that's the picture that he wants to have. But there's a difference between human reconciliation, person to person, and reconciliation between person and God. Because the... the, 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 the um, reconciliation between a husband and wife or a person and a person. It means that someone has to take the first step because we've both, I've never met in a single 
case in my whole life dealing with married people or other relationships where there is a totally innocent person in the conflict. And so both parties have to come to the place where they are seeking to be forgiven. In our relationship with God, we are at enmity with God. We are enemies of God. We are hostile towards God. And we don't make that step towards God. The, the reconciliation from God is an explicitly one-sided process. In other words, he does all of the work and all we do is respond. To be reconciled with God means God did everything for us. All we had to do was step in and respond to his, his reconciling our lives to him, to be at peace so we are no longer enemies, so that we become the children of God that, who he loves deeper than we'd ever know. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through whom Christ is reconciled us to himself and gave us, get this, get this, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the whole world to himself, not counting their trespasses, their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So you see, it, reconciliation is a little bit different than salvation. Only Jesus can save. I can't help save anybody's life from hell. But here, Paul's telling us that he, God says, here's this, this, this ministry of reconciliation. Now I want you as one who has been reconciled to step into this ministry and help in the reconciliation process between God and man. God's put that call on every person's life who has come into faith with Christ. It is not impossible for us to be truly reconciled with each other if we have not first been reconciled to God. We will not have the ministry of reconciliation even with those who we are closest to without being reconciled to God. That is this ministry of reconciliation is that I said it earlier. It's like the lifeboats off the Titanic. And instead of having a number on the side of the boat, it says, reconciled by God. And that boat can only be produced through the work and the person of Jesus Christ. But he gives us that boat of reconciliation, and he places us at the oars with one or two other people, and he says, now go out on the icy waters of the cold Atlantic and find the people who are dying and in desperate need of help, who need to be rescued, whose lives need to be transformed. And we have a choice because we're sitting at those oars just like the people at the Titanic. We have a choice to start looking and rowing our lifeboat to those who are dying. And we can row that boat and we can pick them up and we can help get them into the boat. Get them out of the water where they are going to die for sure. Or we can take our boat and we can go, it looks really scary out on the ocean. I think I'm just going to row over here by the shore because it's safe. If it flips over, at least I can get up and walk to the beach. We get scared. But God's, God's given this to us. And what he gives to us, he is not going to allow us to fail at. He is going to. Uh, that's why we have the Holy Spirit is to empower us to do those things. We have the boat of reconciliation. God sends us to rescue, but he saves. How'd you say it this morning, Matt? Dominoes delivers, but Jesus saves? Yeah, something like that. Jesus is the one that saves. Now, I, I want you to understand about this, these verses 19 and 20. Because we look at that and we think that God has this, this thing that where he's going to wreck reconcile humanity. But that's not what that verse says. That verse says that God is going to reconcile all things to himself. All things. So what does that mean for us? 
Romans 8, Paul does a magnificent job in Romans 8 of telling us what that looks like. It says, for all creation is waiting eagerly for the day, the future day, when God will reveal who his children really are. Creation is looking to us to find out who we are. Understand that. I don't know how to explain this because it's kind of like, you guys might think I'm a little bit goofy. Well, you already think I'm a little bit goofy, but you might think I'm more goofy than I really am. But I'm telling you right now that the, the trees, the rocks, the sea, the oceans, the, the elk, the deer, the fish, all that stuff recognizes God's children. I don't know what, how that happens. I, I've, I've tried to talk to rocks before, and I've got no response. And I've, I've just, as I look at what God does, it says here that all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children again or really are. But then it says, against its will, that is creation. All creation was subjected to God's curse. When man sinned, it wasn't just an effect on man. The whole, we were affected by sin, but the earth was infected by sin. The whole planet, the whole universe, it's not just the planet. All, all of the whole universe, every star, every, every meteor, everything in the solar systems has been infected by, by the sin of Adam and Eve. And, and what he says here is that the, the creation is, has this eager hope Creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Now, what I'm going to tell you right now is a theory that I am presently working on, have been working on for a little while, but a bunch of my pastor friends and I have talked about this theory. Let me tell you what a theory is. It's something that I haven't taken the time to prove yet. Someday when, when I have some more time, I might go after this. But stick with me and follow along. So here's my theory. That the, this world, this earth, this planet that we walk on is more connected spiritually than what we have any idea about. Because whenever there is a major wicked or evil event that takes place on this planet, the earth responds to it in a negative way. I was talking to Pastor John about that just this week because he was in Indonesia. You were in Indonesia when the tsunami hit. You were in stateside. We talked about the tsunami that hit Indonesia. And what he said is that in that area where the tsunami hit the worst is there was a major murder and persecutions of Christians, of Christ followers, that was unprecedented. The, the blood of, of God's children was being spilt all over that land. And out of that, the Indonesians, whether they were Christians, Christ followers, or Muslims, or anything in, believe, in, in, in between, believed that that was the... the the earth responding to that wickedness, that it couldn't take it anymore. And, and whether it was God telling the waves and the earthquake to hit and wash all that out and to show some kind of judgment or whether the earth itself just naturally did it because it is so connected to God, it washed in and washed everything out. And for the next couple of years, the believers in Indonesia in that area had freedom to share Jesus like never before. Now, I'm not just pulling this stuff out of my hat. I'm not making this stuff up that I really believe this because there, there, are, there are places in Scripture that indicate that, that nature is connected so deeply with God that when wickedness happens, it responds. Let me give you the greatest wickedness that has ever been portrayed against God, and that was the death and rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. In, in Matthew chapter 27, it says, When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. I don't know if you know that. You, you should go read Matthew chapter 27. Because it's, if, 
you know, you might go, oh, yeah, well, that's kind of cool. But if you really think about it, it's going to blow your, your mind. Because the, the, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, I mean, the sky gets as dark as midnight. I mean, this is creation responding to its creator. Remember, that's what we learned earlier on in Colossians, that all things were made by Jesus, for Jesus, and for his glory. And so creation responds to the, the, the death of its creator. There's this, this cloud that sets in. The curtain in the temple, which is about a th- foot thick, is torn from top to bottom. No human could do that. And then there's this earthquake that splits open the tombs, and people come out of those tombs, the saints, it says, and they go back into Jerusalem to show themselves, hey, it's Uncle Bob. I thought you died last year. I mean, it's just craziness. And you just look throughout Scripture, and you will see where the earth has responded to the wickedness of man. And God says, I'm not just going to reconcile, bring peace to man between God and man, but I am going to bring peace back to the earth. It is going to be reconciled back to me to its original design. We will be reconciled to God to the original design. In the beginning, God created heavens and earth, the whole thing, at men and, and women. In the end, he is going to reconcile all things back to what they looked like in the beginning. Everything. We walk around uh, just thinking that these rocks and these trees and these beautiful lakes and mountains, God has just given them to us just for our enjoyment. But they were created to worship God, and they've been infected with this sin. And so not only is God going to to reconcile humanity, he is going to reconcile the whole universe. What a marvelous day that will be. Unbelievable. We'll get to see it for what it was meant to be. The death of Christ and the shedding of his blood is what produces reconciliation for all creation. And God has a purpose in that reconciliation. Let's move on to verses 21 through 23. And you who were once alienated and hostile in in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. The purpose of of reconciliation rises from mankind's miserable condition. You might go out and have your friends who are not Christ followers. They probably might not even give a thought about who Jesus is and what he has done for them or for us. They may even be hostile against the name of Jesus, which shouldn't surprise any of us because Jesus told us that's what was going to happen. He said, hey, if you're going to be my follower, it's not going to be easy street. It's going to be hard, hard, hard. But don't worry. I'm going to be with you through the whole thing. We go like, okay, yep. I didn't know it was going to be this hard, but you promised you're going to be here. I'm trusting you to take me through. But here's the thing is that you might look at those people who are not walking with Christ, and you look at their lives, and they go like, you go like, well, how come their life is so easy? It seems like they're blessed, and I'm cursed. It seems like every time they do something, they get wealthier. It seems like every time they, they're engaged in something, people love them deeper. It seems like they have more friends than I do. It seems like, it seems like, it seems like, it seems like. I, I don't know why you're surprised if that's the way life really is for you. Because as soon as you step into a relationship with God, you have set yourself against everything else that is not of God. And so everything else that is not of God doesn't like you. You might think, you, you know, you're, you're pals with all the guys at work or whatever, and they really like you, but I'm going to tell you something. There is a part of you that they just can't, can't stand. When you start to talk the name of Jesus, when you start to talk about sin and, and that that sin has been paid for, when you start to talk about the hard things of the gospel of Christ, they will not be your friends. Now, 
The good news is that the Spirit of God, He goes before you in all things. And He's placed you in those places. And so that rescue boat that's called reconciliation, the oars that you move that boat with are called prayer. You don't move that boat to a place where you've not prayed about. You pray and ask God, where is it that you want me to go? Because here's what, what's happening is the condition of man is absolutely horrible. And, and when it, in the original writing, alienated was uh, an unusually powerful word which indicated a persistent and permanent condition. Did you know you have an alien among you? true. Her name is Lorinda. She's from Canada. She's not a citizen of this land. She loves this land. She loves the people of this land. And if you were to ask her, were you a citizen of? I bet you she wouldn't say Canada. She'd say, my citizenship is in heaven. That's where my citizenship is established firmly. And and as you take a look at this alienation, we're alienated. The aliens, Bible in the Old Testament talks about incorporating and bringing the aliens among you to live among you. It's not talking about space monkeys or something like that. It's talking about those people who, who did not belong originally in the, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, people who are looking at Israel and going like, I like those people. I think they've got something going on. They love God. I want to love God. So they come to join in, and, and God says, include the aliens and call them brothers and sisters. That's what God does here with us because we were alienated never to be a part of God's thing. We are hostile to, towards God doing evil deeds, but now he has reconciled us. And Paul uses the, this phrase, the body of the flesh by his death of Jesus because He's dealing with a specific issue of Jesus not being God, but he is. Now I want you to look at this next part. It says to, the purpose behind it is so that, that, that after we've come out of our alienation and we step into reconciliation through salvation, through Christ, it is so that, that Jesus can present you holy and blameless and above reproach. That's the goal for your life. The goal for your life. This holy and blameless thing, it, it has its roots right in the, Old Test, in the Old Testament. Whenever they brought an animal for sacrifice for their sin, that animal had to be perfect. It had to be spotless. It couldn't be white with one little black patch on the rear end. It couldn't walk up with one ear that's been drooping down and it has ooze coming out of the ear. It couldn't be blind in one eye. It couldn't have a broken, broken leg. It had to be absolutely 100% perfect presented to God. God only wants a perfect sacrifice. That's what he wants. Jesus was our perfect sacrifice, and out of that perfect sacrifice, what Jesus is says, because I was perfect and you are not, now what I am going to do on your behalf is I'm going to present you to my Father as holy, blameless, without reproach. Your perfection comes through me. But it's not just sitting like, you know, sitting in a bathtub of water. You just, you know, you just go like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to soak in Jesus now, and I will be holy and blameless. All you are is a wrinkled prune. I mean, you just get wrinkled. There's action that's required in that. It, it's the action of being obedient to the things that God's called you to do. God's placed the reconciliation lifeboat in your driveway on a trailer, and he says, go rescue. And we go like, I, scary. Part of our thing to become holy, is, is, read the book of James. I just, or talk to my small group. We're going through James right now. There is a standard that God has set out for us. And God's not going to lower his standard. He's not going to to wink at our sin. He is not going to say, ah, oh, it's okay, they didn't mean it. 
He's saying, I want you to be holy. I want you to be blameless. I want you to be without reproach. And that's in every aspect of our life, from the way we work, from the way we raise our children, from the way that we operate with, within the confines of the body of Christ, in every aspect of our life. You see, what sunk the Titanic is they compartmentalized the, tar- the, the Titanic. And they said, all these compartments are going to keep it. If something happens, the rest of the compartments are going to keep it afloat. But that's not what happened. The compartments sunk the Titanic. And when you compartmentalize your life, you will sink spiritually. All of it belongs to God. The the, the last thing here that, that Paul says is, if indeed you continue in your faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard. Paul's not saying, I hope you make it. Good luck. You've come to Christ. Good luck. Hope you make it. Maybe we'll see you on the other side. Maybe not. That is not what he is saying. The, the idea behind it is this. If you stand firm, and I'm sure you will, you will be presented to the Father holy and blameless because not of anything you've done, but because of the person and the work of Jesus in your life and the continuing work of sanctification, that's holiness, of the Holy Spirit in your life. The gospel does not work like magic. Our faith journey requires three things. It requires our mind, our heart, and our will to be involved. Our mind must feed on Christ and his word. Our hearts are to focus on him in love. And our wills are to take their practice and pattern from him and step out in obedience and do what God's called you to do. I want to tell you a story to close with. I don't know how many years ago it was. I read this story the other day. And I don't know how many years ago it was. It wasn't like 100 years ago, but a husband and wife living somewhere out here in the West ended up in a relationship that was no longer looking like marriage. It wasn't a happy place. It wasn't a fun place. It wasn't an enjoyable place. Remember how he described communication breakdown, lack of intimacy, all those things. That was the epitome of their, mes- of their marriage. And it's not like they really hated each other. They just didn't want to be with each other. So what they decided is that they were going to separate from each other. And so they separated, and they left the town they lived in, the city they lived in. One, the woman, she went out east, and the husband went out to the west coast. About a year and a half to two years after he had left and left his wife and had no communication with her in that whole time, the man decided that he was going to go back to the city where he and his wife had resided earlier. And he went back and he went down to the floral shop and he bought a a bouquet of flowers. And then he took those flowers out to the cemetery where he and his wife had buried their son, young son. He was dead. They, they buried him. That was probably the cause to the, the, the breakdown in the marriage. When something tragic happens like that, it's either going to make you better in God or it'll make you bitter. And it made them bitter. And so he came and he's standing at the grave site of his son. And he took the flowers and knelt down on one knee and placed them on the headstone. He was standing there for a few minutes, and all of a sudden he heard a noise behind him in the grass. And he turned around and looked, and it was his estranged wife. His first instinct was to walk past her and say nothing and do nothing. But the Spirit of God stopped him, and he looked her in the eyes, and through his tears, he saw her tears. And they came up together, and they stood at the foot of their son's grave. And what happened next was only by a miracle of God is that they were reconciled. Here's what I want you to get. It took the death of their son to reconcile them. It took the death of God's son to reconcile us. It cost dearly our reconciliation. And so this morning, Jesus can't just be prominent in your life. He has to be preeminent. He reconciled you from a life of death. 
And because of his preeminence, he has made peace with the Father on our behalf, not on something we could do, and that was through him dying on the cross and shedding his blood. And that's called reconciliation. Our, lo- our world that we live in now has left baby Jesus in the manger. And there are some people that are trying to kick Jesus out of the manger and put Santa Claus in it. And, and they, they may not even think Jesus is a good place to start, but there are other people who think that Jesus is just a good place to start on your ger- spiritual journey. But he's much more than that. The truth is there's no one else who can make peace for you or change your attitude or change your hostile mind. There's no one that can rescue you from the ills of this life. And if you have known the reconciling power of Jesus in your life, then the call to you is holiness. Be holy as God is holy. Walk in his word. Live it out every day. Because when you do that, you bring to this world something that they're looking for, and that's hope. And Jesus is the only one that brings hope. Those of you, that I don't know everybody here this morning. Some of you may have understand the whole process of knowing about God and knowing about Jesus, but you've never been reconciled. You have never accepted the reconciliation of Jesus to change your attitude, your heart, your mind, your will to be in line with God. If you've not done that, today's the day. Today's the day of salvation. All you do is just say, you know what, God? Uh, I'm one of those guys. I'm not for you, so that means I'm against you, and I want to be for you, and I know my sin's the blockage. So just forgive me of my sin and help me to step into this relationship with you. You do that, and you are in, right in the middle, getting a big old hug from the trio, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're going to smooch you all over your face, and they're going to pinch your cheeks, and they're just going to love all over you. And you're just going to know that God is real. You've been given today a lifeboat called reconciliation. So launch it. Go find those people in the icy waters who are in despair. And by the way, Christmas is a great time because there's a lot of people in despair at Christmas. Go and give them the greatest gift humanity has ever been given. Reconciliation through Jesus' blood. Amen. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for... You're you doing all the work on our behalf. There's nothing we could do to be reconciled with you. We could not make peace with you. There's nothing that we could present. But yet you presented, you did it. You presented your son to make peace on our behalf. You did all the work and all we have to do is step into it. And so I thank you for that this morning. And for those who, this morning who have never experienced that, I pray that today would be the day where they experience your reconciling power in their life, that they would shed off the old man and become a new creature in Christ. And for those of us who have been walking with you for a long time, Jesus, remind us about the boat of reconciliation and that you've placed us in it to be in ministry with you, reconciling others to you, the throne of God. Give us strength, give us courage, and empower us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.